Let us go to God in prayer. Heavenly Lord, we thank you for the joy that you have placed in our lives, the joy that brings us together here today to worship you as a church family. We ask you that you intercede on our behalf, that you open our ears and our hearts so that we may hear completely and utterly the word that you have for us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. Not something we normally read, but all will become clear. Now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them, so that they may serve me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers spread with oil. You shall make them of choice wheat and flour. You shall put them in one basket, and bring them in the basket, and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water. Then you shall take their vestments and put on Aaron the tunic and the robe of ephod, and the ephod and the breastplate piece, and gird him with the decorated band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head, and put the holy diadem on the turban, and shall take the anointing oil, and pour it on his head and anoint him. And then you shall bring his sons and put tunics on them, and you shall gird them with sashes and tie the headdress on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a perpetual ordinance, and you shall then ordain Aaron and his sons. You shall bring the bull in front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull, and you shall slaughter the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting." And shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And all of the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the appendage of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and turn them into smoke on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside of the camp. For it is a sin offering Our New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 12, and should be something that many of us are very familiar with, uh, most recently because of our readings uh, this past week in some of our small groups that we've been doing throughout the season of Lent. Let's read it together. Chapter 12 begins, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So, in this sermon series that we're continuing to follow along with our readings from our small group and the lessons that we're looking at as well on Wednesday evenings in the worship that we have together there after our midweek meal, we are looking at the concept of study, which for many of us, may not be something so exciting that we're just chomping at the bit to get started on it. But it's interesting to me that one of the universal things that binds us together in human culture is our entry or our appreciation of education. Every single culture on the planet has its own way of educating the next generation and encouraging them even to go beyond Even in the days of the Fertile Crescent and the Neolithic era, there was one generation handing down to the next the practices of early farming and domestication of animals. Without education, the human race would not have gotten perhaps very far. It all points back to this phrase that my sixth grade teacher used to have for us. He was a beloved teacher and still is, um, not only for showing me that The Hobbit was a thing, but also for several other reasons. He had this phrase, whenever there was an assignment or homework or something in class that we didn't want to do, we would inevitably, as sixth graders are usually want to do, we would groan and we would chafe and we would say, oh, why do we have to do this? Sometimes it was under our breath, sometimes it was out loud, sometimes it was just to each other. And if he was ever in earshot, which was 90% of the time, he would come back and he would get this look on his face and he'd say, you have to do it because your lives depend on it. And we would laugh and it was funny because it sounded a little bit like an empty joking threat. But in the course of the years, we realized that he did mean it, not as a do-it-or-die kind of way, not as a threat, but really more in a way that respected the role that education played in his life and the role that he expected education to play in ours. He really did see it as our lives, our livelihood depending on doing the work that he had for us. He thought it was valuable work, and so he wanted us to share in it. Imagine, again, as I said, if the farmers of the Fertile Crescent had failed to pass things on. Imagine if the ancient people of China had stopped teaching others how to make silk, or if we stopped teaching our children how to read. Now, reading, interestingly, is... One of the first ways that Sunday school got started, since we're talking about education and we are in a church, it seems natural that we should talk at least a little bit about Sunday school. It started in the 1780s. There were a few faithful Christian folk who realized that there was a problem It was over in England, and they saw that the children who were working in the workhouses didn't know how to read, because they weren't going to school. There were some schools around, a lot of private institutions, 
In the 1700s, uh, public school wasn't necessarily a thing. And so they decided to make a school on Sunday, which was the only day that the children would get off from work, mostly because of the ecclesiastical pressure that the folks in England put on the owners. And so they taught them to read. They taught them basic arithmetic because there was a value in education. The U.S., of course, as we know, obviously was not absent from that movement even in the early days. Sunday school for us started in the 1790s as the owner of a textile mill in Rhode Island began the first American Sunday school system for the children who lived and worked there. It's an interesting and important date for churches also in America because you can see how it affected our architecture. It's only after this point that you see churches arriving with extra meeting spaces on the sides of the sanctuary or then eventually extra wings or buildings dedicated to Christian education. And despite the name and despite being in many ways the precursor to our educational system, Sunday school was never recognized formally as an education piece. But study was important. It was important to the people of God so much that they created something new that changed the face of education in England and America. And as England was a world power in the 1700s, that changed the face of education in the world, really. So study is important. Study is what Moses and the lineage of Aaron spend the rest of their lives doing. We read as they were consecrated as the new priesthood. And we read just a small part of the rituals that they would be studying and memorizing. Because these were the guidelines of life that showed the people how to draw closer to God. And so Aaron and his sons and the priesthood, eventually they studied deeply, they tested each other, they grew in their understanding of who God is and learned the importance of sacrifices. As our reading this morning in Exodus gave us a taste, we see sacrifices had real blood, real fat, real flesh attributed to them. They maybe had a better understanding of the fact of how study was important and that their lives very much depended on it. And we remember that the law of the Hebrew people was all that they had. It was the only thing that could reveal to them who God was. And when scripture talks about the law, in some places... It has this word Torah, and it means the wider expansion of what we know as the Hebrew Bible. The Torah is everything that we have come to know and understand about God. 
It was the only thing that could reveal to them their place in the universe. Now this past week in our small groups, again, we read a verse from Psalm 119, which I was with a few groups this week and I brought it up. I said, well, we're going to read some of Psalm 19. And, and if you've ever looked at Psalm 19, it's about 130 verses long, so we didn't read the whole thing. But our selection was something that was possibly familiar again to us. It started out with the phrase, Lord, I deeply love your law, your Torah. I think about it, I meditate on it, I study it all day. Your Torah never leaves my mind. And it makes me much wiser Much wiser even than those who hate me and those who hate you. Thinking about your teachings gives me a better and more prosperous understanding than even my teachers who taught it to me. And obeying and living in your laws makes me wiser. Even wiser than those who have lived for a long time. Psalm 119 is like a love poem to learning. The law of God is not just the writ of the Ten Commandments, but the Torah, the way that they had of interacting with who God was. And this isn't just a mistranslation at the beginning where it says, I love your law, I deeply love your law. We have an author who writes this psalm who has studied the stories, the teachings, the rituals, the law, the prophets, everything from Genesis on, and has come up with one conclusion after all of that study. I I love this. I love this, God. The emotion is in response because the story that the author reads is one of love. I deeply love what you have given us, Lord. I deeply love you. We might know a little bit of not the deepness of that love, but... uh, the kind of love where it makes us go through it over and over and over again. Maybe there's a poem or a new favorite song, or even that restaurant that serves that special little thing that you love. Our impulse might be to read and reread the poem, to memorize it, to pin it up somewhere, to look at it, to see it every day, to meditate on it, to think on it. Or maybe we want to play that song over and over and over until the people around us are through with it and us. But there's something about the words in it that speaks out to a piece of us in a very personal way. Or maybe we revisit the restaurant when we want that little piece of comfort, that special thing that they make there that fills some part of our soul. Maybe we've all done that. Because that's how we love things. We want to keep them around. We want to keep them in front of us. 
especially the things that we are still trying to completely figure out how they and we intersect. There was a restaurant up on Broad that I hadn't gone into yet, and I had passing by it and passing by it, and I would, I would smell this smell, and I would be like, it was something deep inside of me was reaching out to that smell. It was speaking to me on this level. We know that smells can interact with our brain in, in all these wonderful ways and recite these memories. And I couldn't figure it out. And I thought maybe it was a mix of the donut shop beside it and this restaurant. Maybe it was all blending together to be something. And I kept, I kept thinking about people in my family or, or places that I'd been. And I couldn't pin it down. So I finally had to go in and see what it was. Of course, looking at the menu, you, you, you want to just walk in and say, what's that smell in your kitchen? Because whatever that is, that's what I want. I don't know what it is on the menu, but whatever that smell is, that they don't let you order, they don't let you order food like that most of the time, most of the restaurants that I've, I've been to. So I, I ordered a couple of things, and I thought maybe it could be this, it could be that, maybe it's one of these things. And I lucked out. It wasn't one of the things that I chose, but they brought bread to the table. And it wasn't just any bread, because you might think, like, well, you couldn't discern bread from the outside. And it wasn't just any bread. It was the bread my grandmother used to make. And as soon as it hit the table, I got a whiff of just the bread by itself, and I was like, oh, my gosh. This is it. This is, the, this is what I was smelling. This is, what, this is what a piece of me was reaching out and wrestling with and trying to grapple with and trying to figure out. This is it. So what is the result of studying the words of God, of grappling with it, of trying to wrestle with the Bible? of studying, of going in, of going deeper, of going back to the restaurant, of trying a few things, trying to figure out what is it that is speaking to me in this. We're going to be better off than the people who despise us, first of all, in in 119, that's what the psalmist says, which is great, I guess I'd kind of hope that. But we're in fact better off than our own teachers by... By we ourselves going into the story and studying scripture, we're going to be better off than the people that teach it to us. Because the word of God being taught to us can only take us so far. Our own study of the word, our own meditation, our own internalization of it will take us beyond what a lecture can give us. We'll be better off, the psalmist says in 119, better off than even the people that have gathered the wisdom of old age. And that's important, because you remember this is a culture that has a significant elder reverence as a huge part of it. So it's no small thing to be able to claim that. It's also from this passage later in 119 that we get a lot of the sayings that we know by heart that have made it into our poetry and songs of worship. The teachings of God are sweeter than honey. We've heard that. And surely thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. There is something incredible going on 
an emotional and life-changing connection to the Word of God, which should come as no surprise to us. This is, after all, the living Word of God. And when we interact with something living, we cannot help but be affected deeply by it. The author of the psalm would gladly answer, Why do I study? Why do I study? Why? Because my life depends on it. This is what Paul is talking about to the Romans. This event that happens when we study, this change in life, the connections from study to living, it happens in a way that we cannot but help when we're drawn into transformation, a renewing of our minds. That then, as Paul says in the letter to Rome, leads us to a better hearing, a better understanding of God's will. And this idea that perhaps study is a kind of sacrifice, as Paul mentions, it should come as no surprise either. We all know, at least in theory, if not in practice, that study demands some kind of sacrifice, whether it's a sacrifice of funds, or a sacrifice of our time, or even a sacrifice of our eyes. That's a real thing. If you look up when the Gutenberg press came out and when the grinding of new kinds of glass for glasses come out, they both go up equally in parallel. This is the sacrifice that we already know that the psalmist in 119 is gushing over that Paul is talking about. The sacrifice of study. The sacrifice of going back into what God is teaching us. And so Paul implores and asks of us and the church in Rome to become living sacrifices. It's not just an act. It's not just a study program. It's not just a Bible lecture series that we listen to. It's not just our belief. It's our spirit. It's our life. The power of God's word and the story of who God is is so amazing and incredible that our body cannot help but also be affected. And Paul knows this and asks for our living sacrifice. Don't just let one part of you be involved, Paul says. Your life, your essence, everything about you. A sacrifice that is different from the sacrifice that we read in Exodus. This is a living sacrifice. We don't have to be killed and bloodied on the altar, but instead we can be up and walking around testifying to our relationship and the power that God has over all the lives of God's children to love and care for them. The same conclusion that the psalmist came to as well. The amazing love of God that elicits this response of joy and deep love in us. 
that the law, the history, the Torah containing God's words to humanity is a source of joy. So we commit ourselves to study, to deep study, to becoming these living sacrifices beyond the loss of time or money or our eyesight. And there's something else that happens physically in the human body that Paul is also talking about in our reading. It's only two verses, but there's a lot in it in Romans. But what's happening in our brains, the human anatomical, biological part of our brains, is that there is plasticity being created. Because of our study. There is a flexibility of neurons and gray matter. There are three ways that our brains have this kind of flexibility. The first way is by being young. (laughs) Children are innately born with this kind of brain flexibility. The second way to have this kind of flexibility is to suffer some kind of trauma. A stroke or some kinds of blunt trauma. Because it forces the brain to rewire itself in a way that increases the brain's flexibility and plasticity. The third way that mimics this same plasticity found in the other two ways is by learning. Is by study. Our brains can stay flexible when we learn. Studying new information keeps our brains from physically stagnating. And I feel like that's an important biological fact to know when we're looking at a pastor and in Paul and we're looking at readings and writings in scripture that say God is doing a new thing. And where Paul says that we should transform and renew our minds. The good thing about brain plasticity is that the more flexible our brains are through learning or being young, the more easily our brains will adapt to trauma. So the more flexible our brain is, the better off we are in being able to recover from the inevitable life events that will come for us. I feel like this is one of those parts of human biology that are mimicked in the human spirit. If we are learning, if we are fully engaging, if we are becoming living sacrifices, if we are deepening our understanding of who God is, if we are finding joy and that deep love in Scripture, then the plasticity of our spirit increases as well. And in those inevitable life events, we will be more able to handle them. Paul is warning the church not only how to watch for the influences of how the world 
can hold their lives of sacrifice back. But also, we can listen to the language that is used. It's nice that sometimes the Greek gets translated into more similar English words, and we can hear some of the alliteration and poetry that happens, and that's the case here. The language has a connotation of solidity to it. And what we read from Paul to the Romans, the world is not just this corrupt thing, but it is also a solid force in that corruption. Do not conform, but transform. Compare those two pieces of language to each other. A far more flexible image that Paul is encouraging. Do not be solidly stuck in the understandings of the world, but instead be transformed and renew your mind. So our study, our lives of engaging with the word of God, our lives meant to be living sacrifices are centered on who God is revealed to us in Scripture. And at the same time, they are invited to be ones of flexibility so that our minds can continue to learn, so that our spirits can continue to be prepared for the traumas of life. And because God is a God of new things. From Isaiah to Jesus Christ, behold, I am doing a new thing. God is a God who invites us not to conform to the world, but to be transformed. And study, a study that can become our greatest joy. The study of this kind, a life of this nature, the transformed life will be better than the accumulated wisdom of our elders and teachers and everyone else. Paul is asking us. The church in Rome and us gathered here, brothers and sisters, enter into this life. Present your awesome life, your awesome self, your holy and acceptable life, Paul says. Present yourself to God and you will not be let down. You will have a renewal of your mind and a greater ability to discern the will of God, the good and awesome thing that it is. And it will be something that we will prize above everything else in our possession. And even more than that, Paul, and the writer of the Psalms, and God, and my sixth grade teacher, remind us that our lives depend on it. Amen.